Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patent at half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican strategist with Echelon Insights. No, that's not true. That's not true. You are not Kristen. This is Dave Wasserman. As promised, we have our Texas mega episode with Dave Wasserman, who is the house editor for the Cook Political Report. He, you probably, you may remember folks who are like OG pollsters listeners that we had Charlie Cook on many, many, many years ago, early on in our polling podcast journey. And Dave is here because he has been following with incredible closeness and acuity everything that's been going on in Texas, everything that's going on with all the different house races and line redrawing. So we can talk about Pennsylvania. That's right. And there's probably – I don't know if I could stump you, but we could try to stump you to see if there are any races or lines that you can, you know, know what's up or how they've changed. Well, Margie, I, I think you're pretty well-practiced <laughs> at the game of congressional <laughs> politics yourself. So Yeah, but, you know, sometimes it's, you don't always remember the exact number or what was it before and what is it now. Well, hey, Pennsylvania renumbered all of its I districts, know. and it's throwing me off big time. And I think it's throwing everyone off. So don't feel bad. I know, right? That's crazy. All right. Well, we'll get to that. First, let's talk about Texas. So we're recording this on Wednesday afternoon. And so people kind of already started to assimilate the kind of big takeaways from Texas. But there's so much. There's the overall. There's a Senate. There's gubernatorial. There's D versus R turnout. There's what's happening in the congressional races. Who's headed to a runoff? What are your big takeaways? What do you, like? Is this the first sign of the blue wave, which is what Democrats all wanted to see? Is it not that? Is it a little bit? of that. What's your big takeaway? Man, I have so many thoughts. And I think I accidentally or maybe intentionally created a firestorm a couple weeks ago when I tweeted out an image of Gallup's approval rating for President Trump by state. And there is one state that he carried where his approval rating is below 40%. And no surprise, it is Texas. And I think there are two reasons why Trump has unique problems in Texas. Number one, he's doing badly anywhere there's diversity. And number two, he's doing badly anywhere. There are a lot of suburban professionals Mm. who used to think of themselves as as Republicans and are now questioning their partisan identity. And Texas is chock full of both of those groups. And so it is kind of the perfect state for for Trump to have a lot of a lot of unique problems in. And does that mean that it's about to turn blue? Look, I'm very skeptical that Texas is going to be ultimately competitive in statewide elections this fall. But. Look, the margin there in, in 2016 between Trump and Clinton was nine points. If you have heightened Democratic enthusiasm, could Texas be a better outside long shot opportunity for for Democrats than some other states on the Senate map? We'll see. But the reason I've been watching it is it's House races. And there are three districts that Republicans hold that Hillary Clinton carried the last time around. And in fact, as I was kind of tracking early voting and talking about these races in the run up to the primary on Sunday night, as I was boarding a plane, 
I'm standing there on the jetway, and right in front of me is one of those vulnerable Republican members. So it brought it all gonna, home. You're not going to tell. Well, I'll just to... I'll just say that I was flying out of Dallas. <laughs> okay, leave okay. it at that. Good enough. I I knew somebody who was on a plane to go meet with a Democratic candidate and sat behind the Republican incumbent, who not only was in front of the person who was friends with me. But also was looking at their like campaign plan PowerPoint on the plane, like step one, we're going to go after our opponent on X, like the full campaign plan and like message box and everything on the plane, sitting one row or two rows in front of a Democratic consultant going to go visit their opponent. Yeah, this world is smaller than you might think. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, that, that like the Acela problem, but it can happen literally anywhere. Um, So, uh, okay, so, but the background, though, for all this Texas stuff is that Democrats have been kind of excited about Texas for a very, very long time. I went to, just in terms of where I come from, like where my loyalties lie in this kind of Texas uh, dream that Democrats have. When I was in high school, we had a write in our government class about a follow a campaign that was happening at that time and write about it. And so I wrote about the Ann Richards, Clayton William Williams campaign. And I was inspired by her to go to politics and to go to Texas. So I went from New Jersey to the University of Texas at Austin because she was the governor. I mean, it was also because of you know, Slacker and Stevie Ray Vaughan. I mean, there were other things, but it was also because Ann Richards was governor and, um, and she was really part of this sort of like brassy woman centric thing that was going on in Texas at the time and, you know, may still be there. But there with Ann Richards as the governor, we had Molly Ivins was at her peak. Right. Lady Bird would still come to events. I mean, there was like a whole thing about this, right? Sarah Weddington, who was the lawyer, Roe v. Wade. They were all there at the same time. It was really like, that was my, I need my cat after Ann Richards at the time. Yeah. <laughs> so like, this is something that Democrat, this is how long this goes back, basically, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. And there's, there's this proud Democratic tradition that is, that is proudly Texan. And there are a ton of Democrats in Texas, but let's face it, a big part of that is because Texas is such a big state. So, you know, all our life, live lives, we've been talking or we've been hearing about how right. Texas is changing, right? How, right. But how then, but then Clinton did better in Texas than in Ohio, right? So that was seen as like, aha, we, you know, we, this day is finally almost here. Well, then, then in Iowa, not quite Ohio, oh, but it was, yes. it was about the same. But look, I, I think there is a reason why Texas really is evolving and becoming not purple, but a purpler shade of red in the last few years. And you know, over the course of the last 32 years, uh, Texas has pretty much stood still. Uh, you know, it hasn't voted uh, for a Democrat for statewide office since 1994. But if you take Ronald Reagan's uh, margin in 1980 over Jimmy Carter in Texas, right, it was it was about 16 points. Uh, and fast forward to 2012, Mitt Romney's margin over Obama was was about 16 points in Texas. And you know, so th these Democratic predictions that diversity and, and the growing Hispanic and African-American and Asian share in Texas would change the state's political complexion as well, uh, they, they proved unfounded for a long, long time. But what's but the reason why that was the case was was you had a migration of rural whites from de the Democratic column mm -hmm. to the Republican column mm -hmm. that offset it. And so for every new Latino voter that came of age and was voting for a Democrat, you had a rural white voter who was moving into the Republican column. And essentially, Democrats were mm -hmm. were losing 
two votes as a right. result. But what's happened now is Republicans are pretty much maxed out on rural whites. Mm-hmm. And it's a dwindling share of Texas's population. I would estimate Donald Trump won over 85% of, of rural white Texans in 2016. And so you can't really win much more than that. And now not only do you have a continuation of the growth of Texas's minority communities, particularly Hispanics, but also uh, African-Americans and Asians in the Dallas and, and, and Houston metro regions, but you also have a migration of suburban whites right. out of the Republican Party into kind of this politically homeless place, but m- might be open to voting for the right kind of a Democrat. And that's why I'm watching so many of these, these house races. Okay. So let's break it down a little bit. So for the first, the, the statewide race that people are paying super close attention to is the Senate primary, the Senate primary, both on the Republican side and on the Democratic side. Beto O'Rourke has really caught fire in terms of low dollar donations and press. And obviously Cruz is worried because he went out on the attack in this kind of oddly personal way, like last night. Well, while they were still collecting, you know, tallying the votes and making fun of his yeah, using I thought his that nickname. was peak Ted Cruz to send out a really cheesy jingle on primary night. Yeah, I mean, well, first of all, Cruz has a history of kind of wacky pop culture references that are kind of grating and weird to most people, like with the Simpsons, like Democrats of the Party, Lisa's. There's a long list of them, which we don't need to bore everyone with, but I guess everybody enjoys them. But the, you know, Democrats of the Party, Lisa Simpson, and Republicans of the Party of Homer Simpson, which nobody understood why you would do that. Why? <laughs> like he talked about the Princess Bride. I think he excited the Princess Bride once, and I can't, there are a few others. Anyway, so he's got this kind of weird pop culture ear that is bizarre and so then to like make a country song to make fun of Beto Rourke who's been called Beto since he was a small child is kind of silly and also Ted Cruz's name is Raphael it's not Ted um his you know his given name uh so anyway that's a sign at least that Cruz is worried about Beto but when you looked at the uh turnout did you see signs that there was this you know, Democratic wave that O'Rourke is strong headed into the general. I mean, what's your take looking at that? Well, a couple of things. Uh, You know, there are some on Twitter that called uh, Democrats turnout uh, yesterday disappointing for their side. I'm comparing it to past midterms, and the numbers are, are, are pretty favorable for Democrats in the sense that their turnout, their raw votes were up about 85% over 2014, whereas Republicans were up uh, only about 14%. And that's total. So it was right, early voting as a percentage of total different than in the past? or Yeah, the early voting favored Democrats much more than that because Democrats' enthusiasm caused them to cannibalize some of their own Election Day vote. And that's a pattern that we obviously saw in November of 2016. Mm-hmm, right. But look uh, – even though Republicans still were about 60% of the overall primary turnout in Texas, these are pretty good numbers for Democrats compared to recent midterms. And I think it shows that their enthusiasm is way above what it was in 10 or 14, uh, whereas Republicans, you know, only maybe mildly so. The good news for Republicans, they didn't see a turnout drop uh, from from those years. But uh, there's, uh, I think, reason for for optimism for, for Democrats in a, in a couple of uh, specific congressional districts. Uh, you saw Democrats with big spikes in turnout in the wealthiest inner suburbs of Dallas and Houston, which mm-hmm. is where uh, Congressman Pete Sessions and Congressman John Culberson, two Republicans, are probably at the most risk. You saw some right. uh, surge for Democrats in San Antonio, uh, where Will Hurd, 
uh, is is a vulnerable right. Republican incumbent. I'd argue he's actually in slightly better shape than the other two because he's had competitive races mm-hmm. recently, and the other two have not. Right. He but, he knew he knew it was coming. Right. Right. But you know, when when I was tweeting out this this Texas early vote data last week. I didn't really have Beto O'Rourke in mind, but, but of course the reaction from Texas Democrats, oh my God, Beto, you know, he's packing these town halls in rural Texas. He's, you know, we're running out of Beto yard signs and bumper stickers. And, uh, I'm seeing, I'm town seeing all my Republican vote, right? neighbors with these Beto signs. And it's like, well, he's winning number one, about 62% of the primary vote. Uh, he won 87% of the Democratic primary vote in Austin. But lost a lot of of kind of midsize, non-major metro Texas towns. He he did pretty poorly against a uh, Latino opponent uh, along uh, the Rio Grande and in South Texas. So you know, Beto Rourke, uh, having been a punk rocker, uh, he is he is becoming a political rock star with white liberals. Right. But and, he has work to do to consolidate the Democratic base. Well, it's also always a question of expectations, you know. So when you just see Beto O'Rourke stuff everywhere, you know, everywhere from here from Washington, you have these expectations that, you know, that are just going to be high. If you were not following this race closely, you would say, wow, well, he looked like he really did a great job. He got, you know, he was avoiding a runoff and, you know, there he goes. That's really great considering he's never run statewide before. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, a couple of months ago, you might have said 62% is great. Uh, I think the, the hype and the national stories surrounding his candidacy have made him out to be more of a savior of the Democratic Party in Texas than uh, the evidence shows he is so far. Uh, it's not to say that, uh, that, that Texas can't become a competitive race in the fall. I think it can in part because of that heightened Democratic enthusiasm, but also because Ted Cruz is Ted Cruz and, and is not every Republican's cup of tea. Uh, but I, look, uh, o- O'Rourke so far is is pretty much a f- phenomenon uh, among white liberal voters, mm-hmm. and that that's got to change for him to have a chance. Mm-hmm. So, talk a little bit about what what you see down the line. There's a runoff that's going to be in May, and what will turnout look like there? How is that going to change? You know, given that some places have competitive runoffs underneath the top of the ticket, you know, where there's a gubernatorial primary. Like, how do you sort through all that if you're as you're looking at all this? And are you surprised by who's made it to the runoff and who has avoided a runoff? A big lesson from yesterday was that there's very little that the national parties and in particular Democrats who are out of power right now can do to alter the outcome of these primaries that in some cases are very crowded. And there's a fascinating statistic that in those those three Clinton Republican districts that we were talking about, the Democrat who raised and spent the most money in each of those races not only missed the runoff, they came in fourth place in all, all three, three of those contests. Wow, which is pretty stunning. Wow. So, uh, looking at the 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 runoffs in May, the one that's kind of gotten the most attention is outside of Houston, uh, in Texas, the seventh district. Uh, Republican John Culberson is the incumbent, and and it's become uh, this this focal point because of of uh, a Democrat named Laura Moser, who is this really progressive mom's demand action um you know kind of bernie style liberal progressive who's who's running uh against a uh, emily's list endorsed lawyer uh named uh, lizzie fletcher 
And you know, I'm expecting that Fletcher will have the advantage in that race because I do think those those uh, you know kind of suburban Democrats in inner Houston are pragmatic. They know that they've never won uh, this congressional district for generations. This used to be George H.W. Bush's old seat. Um, so I, I, I think that there's evidence, particularly on the Democratic side and looking at past primaries, for example, in Virginia, where Ralph Northam beat Tom Perriello, that, that Democratic voters um, are, are more moderate in this, in the suburbs and are willing to make choices to benefit their general election chances. Okay. So let's talk a little bit about how you collect and interpret these thoughts, right? Cause you're not just digging through exit, you know, exit data or returns or looking at the lines. You also, as the house reporter for, uh, Cook political report. You also make sure you interview candidates. You try to give them some, you try to have some assessment beyond simply like just looking at the data. There's other stuff. So how do you go about handicapping or evaluating how voters may be more moderate or may not be, or may have enthusiasm and whether this candidate fits that bill or are they too tied or not tied enough to national party? How do you, how do you make sense heads or tails of that in a way that's adaptive to a changing climate, but not too adaptive? There's this fixation that I find fascinating on uh, whether candidates are too liberal or too conservative for a district, or whether you know they're they're good or bad ideological fits. In my 11 years of covering these races, I think the most important predictor of whether someone has a good chance of winning is whether their life story connects with voters in the district, not necessarily mm-hmm. their ideology, mm-hmm. and. We we've seen in wave election years all kinds of candidates win. Mm-hmm. You know, in in two thousand and six, for example, the last time Democrats won back the House, there were an awful lot of conservative Democrats who won in the Midwest and the South, but there were also Democrats like Carol Shea Porter in New mm-hmm. Hampshire who were very liberal uh, and 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 won with a grassroots army because they were able to harness the energy of the left and portray themselves as outsiders. So in in 2010, you saw a mirror image of that. I think in 2018, you're going to have Democrats from from a wide variety of backgrounds. Uh, The one advantage I do see for Democrats overall is irrespective of ideology, the bulk of their their challengers have not been sitting around in a state legislature for Mm -hmm. for 10 or 15 years. That's their advantage. I think so. How so? Because they don't have a voting record for Republicans to attack. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are first-time candidates who will make mistakes, but it's going to be difficult, I think, in a lot of races for for Republicans to call them tax-and-spend liberals or tie them to Nancy Pelosi. I think you're seeing that right now in Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania 18, 18, right, where they had Nancy Pelosi and Hillary Clinton on a door knocker. right. Connor Lamb has not given Republicans much to work with. I was talking with a Republican strategist recently who said that they had a tracker in in the district for a couple of weeks. They couldn't get anything on this guy. And for a, a first time candidate, put some scary ladies on the door knocker. I mean, it is so offensive. I mean, sorry, I know this is not like data driven. This is just my opinion. It is like obscenely offensive. And I was like, well, this guy may be okay, but aren't you panicked about these ladies? You know, one of whom is not. One of whom is not, you know, even in office in any way. Right. And the Nancy Pelosi attack can work in some places. I do think that that voters in Georgia 6, for example, um, did believe that that John Ossoff was a 
was more of an, a liberal activist than he was letting on. He became a national celebrity. And I do, I think that backfired mm-hmm. in Georgia. Uh, but the DCCC, to its credit, I, I think, has stayed out of Pennsylvania 18. And Connor Lamb has not given Republicans much of much much uh, of a window to uh, to put him in line with with Pelosi, and I think that comes across authentically to voters there because of of Lamb's background as a Marine and a prosecutor. We'll see if that's enough to win a district that uh, that that Trump carried by 19 points, but uh, from where we're, we're we're looking at it today. I'd be slightly more surprised if Saccone, the Republican, wins that race. We'll mm-hmm. see. Mm-hmm. Okay, so Texas, you f- so to wrap up Texas before we go to Pennsylvania, do you feel that it? You don't. It doesn't sound like you think it's a sign that Democrats are strong around the country or stronger than we had thought they were before. Maybe it does, right? Do you feel like this is this is a signal that things are going really well for Democrats or is it just, you know, sort of what we would expect the outcome of being? The increased energy level compared to past midterms to me confirms the uh, the evidence we've seen in in special elections that Democrats uh are 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 more enthusiastic than than Republicans right. that they're experiencing um, a, a grassroots surge. It, could it have been more dramatic in the final Texas count? I think a lot of Democrats were hoping that it that it that it would be. Uh, I think the results show that uh, that that. They I liked people like yeah. really complaining yeah. about it at like when one percent was in last night. Sure. There were a lot of people like this. These results are you know terrible for Democrats. I'm like, well, okay, one percent is in right now, so maybe we should just hold sure. off and on look, that. Assessment. The reason we're talking a lot about <laughs> this is it's really the only 2018. Yeah. Data point we have so far, and we'll have so many more in a couple months. Right. Okay. So then Pennsylvania, what is happening? With, I made a joke last week or the week before that the day that the lines came out, if you said, like, if you had a drinking game about, like, and it drink every time somebody says new maps, you would have been drunk by eight o'clock Tuesday morning because there was just so much fever out there about the new maps in Pennsylvania, what it means and who's running and who's not running. And now the filing deadline's closed, right? And so people have kind of made up their mind. But what does this mean for Democratic chances in Pennsylvania? Why, you know, why do the why do the lines matter so much? Pennsylvania was one of the most aggressive Republican gerrymanders of this decade. And for uh, the last several years, Republicans have uh, have won 13 of Pennsylvania's 18 seats, despite it being a really, really competitive state. Part of that was, uh, I think, the fact that Democrats are really clustered in, in Philadelphia and Pittsburgh and are at kind of a natural geographic adva- disadvantage. Uh, but a, a lot of it was the fact that Republicans drew the lines in such a way uh, that you, know, <laughs> you had districts that looked like like Bullwinkle, the moose. And the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court overturned the map. Let's face it. I don't think they would have had Democrats not won a partisan majority on that court, right. uh, which which means this is unlikely to happen elsewhere, right? right. Uh, at least before 2022. But uh, I do think it gives Democrats about two more seats than they otherwise would have won. Mm-hmm. And that's not to say, you know, Democrats are only going to pick up two seats in Pennsylvania. But what I mean is Democrats already were in a good position to pick up uh, two to four seats in Pennsylvania before the new map was put in place. Now they're in a position, I believe, to pick up four to six. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. 
A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. Now, so here's another question, right? So, it be, you know, it, the maps are contribute to this trend, but you see this trend in other places too, where people who are from a district moving back home because they are inspired to run for office. It's not just in Texas, not just in Pennsylvania. It's true around the country. You know, folks who worked for Obama, but they're, you know, but they grew up in a district and they come home and are running for office or you have lines that are fuzzy. So that's causing people maybe not living in the district where they started. Do you think that this is a, is there more of this than you've seen in past years? Do you use your sense that this is something that is a challenge, is an obstacle for candidates, or do you think it just really depends case by case? Yeah, the reality is, Democrats have had a hard time finding candidates who have spent their careers in these districts and also have the capacity to raise a lot of money and have the connections to run a well-funded race. And so in a lot of seats, you've got Obama administration veterans who are moving back home to run. You've got military veterans who have spent time outside the district. And I think a lot depends on what have you been doing in the time since you left, uh, you know, your, your, your hometown and your church and school and all the rest of it. And kind of my, my test case is Michigan's eighth district. You have a Democrat named Alyssa Slotkin, uh, who, uh, grew up in suburban Detroit, uh, was in a prominent, actually, um, is a member of a prominent meatpacking family outside Mm -hmm. Detroit. Uh, and she, Went off to college at an Ivy League school. She eventually uh, worked in in the CIA. Uh, she rose the ranks in the Obama State Department, and she is running in 2018 in suburban Detroit. But she was not registered to vote there until quite recently. Mm-hmm. And so, do voters there hold it against her, or she can she weave and narrate a story of of public service that resonates? We'll see. Right. Right. Um, so what, what else, where else are you looking? California is one that a lot of Democrats have been talking about. What other battleground states or congressional races, maybe even if a congressional race that's in, not in a very battleground state, what else is on your horizon? So there are a handful of states that, uh, are, are, I think going to, to play a big role in deciding the house. What, what, sticks out the most to me about this cycle is how little overlap there is between the Senate and House battlegrounds. Mm. I don't think I've seen this little overlap mm-hmm. in, the, in the decade I've been doing this. And what I mean is this, the Senate's predominantly going to be decided by rural and small states where Democrats are playing defense. Mm-hmm. And the House is going to be decided by the suburbs where Republicans are playing defense. Mm-hmm. And even though... Donald Trump and Republicans are not dependent on places like California or New York or New Jersey for Senate seats or electoral college votes. There are still an awful lot of Republican members of the House from those those districts mm-hmm. and states. And a lot of them uh, will uh, will have given Democrats an issue on the salt exemption after Republicans, uh, you know, passed the uh, passed the tax cut. So uh, California, you've got seven Republicans uh, in Clinton districts, New Jersey, Democrats have an opportunity, I mm-hmm. think, to pick up 
at least three districts there and New York, probably three or four more districts there. And, and, and Pennsylvania, once you throw all that in, that's if Democrats run the table, about two thirds of the seats they need for the, for the majority. Right. So do you guys do like, okay, here's the, here's the total map looking at the total map. What's the chance that Democrats take back the house or it's too yeah, early to say, you know, I, 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 uh, I really loved the, uh, the Axios story from the other day that, uh, with the headline, Democrats may have already won the majority. Oh yeah. That was, that was, uh, <laughs> that was new to me, but, uh, yeah, I'd people, put people the, enjoy to, you know, make, make right. fun of that one. That one bounced around a right. little bit. <laughs> but, you know, I put maybe 60% on it right now. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, if, if you, if you kind of painted a picture of what Republicans holding the majority this year were to look like, you'd have to have uh, an economy that was that was doing really well in quarters three and four. I think you you would need um, a lot of races to become localized. But really, what I mean by localized is you'd need. Republicans beating the crap out of Democratic challengers to the point where they're just not credible anymore. Right. I mean, ha- because what you're saying, it sounds like, is that it's hard to turn around a national wave in March that, you know, right now you have a lot of indicators pointing toward Democrats doing well, Republicans having a lot of challenges. Maybe that that gap will change, but can it be flipped on its head completely? you know, that would probably take something pretty sizable to happen out of the White House. I'm, I mean, yeah, what's your sense? And, and look, I, I'm not overthinking this too much. I, I think Democrats need a lead on the generic ballot of about seven points mm-hmm. to break even in the House. And you know, they've they've at times been hovering at or slightly below that. But for the most part, the cycle, they've been above it. And to me, that says Democrats have a really good shot. Okay, so tell, talk to us just a little bit more before we go about, you know, the meetings that you have when candidates come into town. Because folks who listen, like, you know, there's a little bit of difference between the folks who do polling where there's messaging involved and they're the, you know, the folks who work on voter files and modeling and projections who are really very much focused on the, the you know, the numbers underneath the voter file. Then you have, you know, forecasters and people just sort of weave it all together into um, into a story. And your focus often is really figuring out what, you know, look talking to these candidates individually. So tell us how that's changed. Tell us a little bit more. I, we talked about a little bit, but like, how has that changed over time? Do folks come to those meetings and they try to spin you? And, you know, how do you kind of get them off their game? Like, how do those meetings go? Because, I, you know, that is, I, I think, is a something that people maybe don't know a little, don't know quite so much about. Yeah. Uh, we've. I'm trying to think of uh, how many candidates uh, I've, I've met. I can't really keep count after this much time, but. Uh, probably like a, th- a thousand, a couple thousand. I, I would say it's in the high hundreds, mm-hmm. probably. But uh probably an even number of Democrats and Republicans. And there are, there are a lot of people who come in and are, are have clearly got their talking points and won't get off them. But, you know, what we're looking for is something different than, than, you know, they're, they're 
typical stump speech. We we want to know their game plan right. to win the race. Right. And Which it, a consultant will tell a candidate, don't talk about that stuff. Right. You know, that don't get in the weeds in your campaign right. plan. That's not that shouldn't come out of your mouth. But when you right. go to the handicappers, that's what they want to hear. You can't just say, you know, I love kids and mom and apple pie. You got to get a little bit more under the hood. Yeah. And there are two questions that we always ask that I can't believe how many candidates don't come prepared with an answer for. And and they are, <laughs> <laughs> why do you want to be a member of Congress? Right. And that stumps more people than you'd think. And the second is, <laughs> no, it does me. not stump more people than I would think. <laughs> right. Maybe than someone else might think, sure. but not than I would think. No. Yeah, exactly. You you know the drill. <laughs> but the second one is is tell me how you're different from your party's leadership or the stereotype of your party today. Um, what I'm looking for in these candidates is, you know, can this person think independently? Mm-hmm. Um, and and you know, I'm I'm that's not I don't think a bias towards uh, towards moderation per se. It could be that they disagree with their party to, you know, even further left or even further right. But I'm just looking for can this person think and make decisions for themselves? Because uh, oftentimes that's that's a good indicator of of, of whether they can navigate. A difficult political environment. And the f- funny thing to me is I'm going back and, and talking with a lot of Republican incumbents who at one point were candidates coming through our offices because now they're, they're vulnerable heading into 2018 right. and we want to figure out their game plan for surviving. Right. And one of the more interesting conversations I had uh, the other week was with a Republican incumbent from one of those 23 Clinton districts. Uh, and, uh, there are 23, uh, Republicans sitting in, in Clinton seats. And I asked him, um, how is the political environment in your district looking? And and he said, well, you know, we, f- we feel really good about our, our odds today and where we stand. Um, I, I just did a poll and it turns out that 40% of people in my district love Trump and will never leave him. 40% of people hate him and want to impeach him. And the other 20% are what I would describe as normal people. <laughs> and <laughs> so that's the target demographic for, for, for every, incumbent uh republican i would say i mean that's funny now these conversations you have they're off the record or they're on background right you don't quote them right on background yeah right. so i would uh I, I would cringe it i would cringe if i heard a candidate i was working with say that like don't say that 20 only 20 percent of your district is a normal person i mean i'm sure it gets a laugh but then you know is that person now like getting that laugh and then saying it all over the place and all of a sudden there's a video of them saying like 20 percent of only 20 percent of my district is normal and everyone else is crazy that seems you know yeah and problematic but that that's still going to inform a lot of the ads that we see in these swing districts and we we may enter the fall and see republicans running a, a lot of ads that criticize uh their their own party or criticize trump is that a sign that the party's <laughs> leaving leaving the white house behind of course not so are they coming to these meetings and they're like look I know Trump is, you know, damaged and problematic and erratic. And I, you know, I know what he's doing is not right. I'm just trying to hang on to my seat so I can help guide him toward X, Y, and Z. Or do they come in like Trump is the man and I'm just harnessing all the like awesome power of Trump and, you know, everybody's out to get him and, and, and also me by extension, me. Yeah, the the reality of of today's Republican Party is that there are a lot more critics of Trump in private, right? Than there are in public. There's no doubt about that. And 
I suspect you'll see a few more Republicans be willing to uh, to criticize the White House after filing deadlines. And yes, primaries. that's been my theory. That's been my theory. I um, so I know personally Jennifer Sarver, who lost her primary in Texas, who ran right. her race as a Republican on not being a Trump voter, you know, and she's got full Republican credentials. She mm-hmm. worked for Kay Bailey Hutchinson. She worked for Karen Hughes. She, you know, she is. And she, she is was a very open with us about her game plan. Yep. I talked to her and she is politically homeless. Yeah. Uh, candidates like, like her have nowhere to go in this yeah. environment. And, and in fact, I asked her and I didn't ask this, you know, to be offensive, but I asked, would you ever consider running as a Democrat in that district? Because that is, I think, exactly the profile of Democrat that could win in, in a seat that that is heavily suburban and saw Trump's margin fall below where past Republicans were. Yeah. And what'd she say? Oh, it's on background. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> I'm not, not going to share. <laughs> no, I mean, you know, it would be great if Republicans embraced more women candidates. Like, I mean, it, it wouldn't be great for our Democratic chances, but I think it would be great for sort of our overall political climate if, you know, they, if Republican Party embraced more women candidates like Jennifer Sarver. I saw in one of her, um, in one of the debates that they had, one of the other candidates, like, well, we don't have a problem with married women, you know, married women, but Repu- like there was, there was something like so tone deaf that one of the other candidates said. And- Although, let's be honest, there there was a candidate, a Republican woman running last night in Texas's second district outside Houston in a uh, very crowded Republican primary. She spent $6 million of her own money. Her name's Kathleen Wall. She spent $6 million comparing herself to Donald Trump. She she was kind of the self-styled female Trump uh, compared her hair to Trump compared her, hmm. her last name, which is wall to Trump's border wall. You name it. She was, <laughs> she was on top of it. And she didn't even make the runoff. She, she missed the runoff by 145 votes against two candidates who had spent a tiny fraction of what she had spent. And so uh, whoever said that, that campaign needed, needs an audit, uh, I, I think it just proves that you could you can spend a lot of money, but if you're running ads with with the production value of public access television, mm. it may not win you the race. Right, right. Yeah, well, you know, just also the gender dynamics in a Republican primary are so different. Democratic primary can easily be over 60% women. and just changes the dynamic of the kinds of candidates that can do well and, and how that all works on the Republican side. You know, it just makes it a little bit of a harder climb. Unfortunately, for Republican women candidates. Yeah. And the percentage of women is going to go up yet again in the uh, in the Democratic caucus in, in 2018. I, th- I think big time. Um, I don't think it'll go up as much on the Republican side. Um, you know, right now, 87 percent of House Republicans are white men. Forty one percent of Democrats are white men. And that's going to fall under 40 percent in 2018. And I, I think it speaks not just to the gender dynamics in these primaries, but also to the value that, that the different values Democrats and Republicans place on making Congress look more like the people it represents. Right, right. Well, and also the issues that they focus on, the language that they use and so on. So right. um, not that we have it all figured out on our side, but, you know, definitely I think there's some challenges on the other side. Well, thank you so much. How can people find you? There, You have lots of online digital homes. <laughs> you can rattle them all off as much as you like and plug whatever it is you want to plug. Well, cookpolitical.com is my full-time home. 
Um, but I, I've dabbled. Uh, I've contributed to uh, to 538.com. We have a great uh, project uh, that we just spent six months doing on on gerrymandering, and uh, we we drew uh, new districts for the entire country seven seven different ways, which was very exciting for uh, for uh, extreme nerds like myself. Whoa! Okay, and then uh, you know also, and you did that to what to like better reflect the. What was the goal of the of redrawing them? Well, our goal was to illustrate for people how even subtle changes to district boundaries can alter the power structure in Congress. Mm. And so do you prioritize minority majority districts? Do you prioritize compactness, competitiveness? Do you uh, uh, prioritize randomizing the process or, or, or um, installing some sort of computer algorithm to do it. So um, it, it's, it was a big team effort. It's a cool project. Go check it out. Cool. Well, thank you so much. And what's your Twitter handle so folks can find you? Because you are on Twitter a lot. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's actually at redistrict. And I, I, you claimed I, it. I claimed it right before the 2011 round of redistricting, uh, and <laughs> and people afterwards were telling me, you know what, you know, you should really change it back. It's over. And I think I have the last laugh because it never ends. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you so much, Dave. We really appreciate it. It was great having you on to uh, sub in for Kristen this week. Thanks. I, I can't. Uh, I can't sing rock like she can, but uh, she always hates it when I say that. But it's been great to be with you, Margie. <laughs> well, take care. Bye. Thanks.